Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Chad Norman, Internet Marketing Manager here at BlackBot and your host for this nonprofit technology podcast. This is episode 31 for September 22nd, 2009. Today's show is Taking on the World, or at least the world of global giving. We're going to take a look at international fundraising and how nonprofits are approaching advocacy and technology. But before we go global, let's meet today's panel. One of our regular guests is back from Reston, Virginia. It's Danielle Bridgetel. Welcome, Danielle. Hello, hello. Danielle is the social media outreach coordinator at the National Wildlife Federation and podcast regular. Glad you're back again. Well, thanks for having me. Yes. All right. And joining us from London is uh, Amy Sample Ward, the global community builder from NetSquared. Welcome back to the show, Amy. Hi. Hello. (laughs) I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate uh, taking the time to uh, make the show today. For sure. Coming back to us, it's been a long time, is uh, Mark Pittman, the director of the Inland Foundation, the founder of fundraisingcoach.com and author for Ask Without Fear. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks. It's great to be back. The Fundraising Coach. I'm really excited to have your perspective today on today's show. Then we have some uh, BlackBot folks with us today, and I'm really excited to have Robert McAllen, uh, Program Manager from BlackBot Europe, joining us from Glasgow today. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me. And we also have Steve McLaughlin, the Director of Internet Solutions here at BlackBot. Hey, Chad. Hello, Steve, podcast regular. And back, I think, after a three or four show absence, we have Melanie Mathis, the Public Relations Manager at BlackBot. Welcome back, Melanie. Thank you so much. Excited for today's show. Well, today's entire show kind of stemmed from a comment that Amy said on a previous podcast when we were done taping. Amy, you had just moved to London, and uh, you were talking about how you noticed right away how different nonprofits were over there and how they acted. You said that they tended to wait for um, government to tell them when and how to act. And I'm sure that's a big, um, glossy overstatement. But that in the States, it seems to be a little different, right? Uh, I think uh, nonprofits here have a real sense of purpose and tend to prod prod along everybody, uh, including uh, people and governments. I just want to ask, throw that out right at the top and just sort of ask, do you still think that's true now that you've been there for a little longer? Well, I mean, I think that I would uh, have have paraphrased that differently um, (laughs) if I was remembering that conversation. Um, And not necessarily that they're waiting for a government body to say, like, this is your mission or these are the services you should provide, but more that there, there, I think, is a bit more attention paid to the direction that government would want you or, or how you would be delivering those services or the locations you should be delivering those services to or the communities you'd be de- delivering those services to than in the U.S. But, you know, and it's it's really influenced by the fact that it is a small country geographically compared to the U.S. That's really huge. Um, But you also have layers of government, unlike we do in the U.S., that are very, very, like, not formal in the, like, bow tie formal, but bow tie in the, like... Hey, hey, don't knock the bow ties. (laughs) You know, I mean, in the U.S., it's like, here are federal representatives, here are state representatives, here are local representatives. You know, like, three very distinct tiers. Whereas over here government isn't in such kind of segmented pieces um there's a lot more there's a lot more mesh going on and so when you have different departments or different little threads of that mesh that have different funds that are on all different three or one year time scales and are all taking direction or accountability from other than pieces of the mesh it really creates I don't know, it kind of makes for a more confused approach because you might be looking to get funded by Department ABC because the director there is Mr. Smith, and then six months later, he's in a different office for a different agency, but it's still that same fund you want to get the money to, but because there's someone else there, they have way more leeway over saying how those funds get allocated than in the U.S., where... A, there's not as much there's not there's not as much transfer of who's who's doing what, where, when, and there's also not as much flexibility in how you get rid of funds. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like the idea about the mesh. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, 
So do you, you know, we always throw out that. What's the number we throw out here as far as nonprofits in the United States? Is it 1.6 million? Something like that. 1.4. Yeah, 1.4. So are, is there noticeably fewer there? I mean, because of this sort of mesh phenomenon? I mean, I would say it's it's hard to notice something like that because it's still per capita. Yeah, right, right. right. So like you go to a net Tuesday in London, just like you do in Portland. And it's like, Oh yeah, here's all these groups. You know, it's not like there's a million or five. It still seems kind of relative the same. Robert, uh, now as someone that's uh, from from the aisle, how would you sort of interpret it? What we're talking about? Um, Do you you sort of agree? Well, I do to a certain extent, but I think that um, the thing about the, the, the UK is that um, there's actually, right across Europe, there's always been much more of uh, an influence of government in fundraising um, uh, throughout the years. And it's something that, that hasn't happened in the US. And a lot of money has come from the government throughout the years. You know, there's uh, 164,000 charities in the UK and and you know, a, a lot of them get some sort of money from the government. But um, I think importantly that is a trend that's changing a less and less money is being plowed into the uk not-for-profit sector by the government and so that that has meant that a lot of organizations are having to go out now and uh, and start to fundraise where they hadn't before and in my i've been with blackboard now for 10 years and in my 10 years at blackboard it's um i've i've actually seen that that change from the very small organizations run by volunteers and so on um moving much into much more into very professional organizations that are run more like grown-up businesses than than they, they perhaps were in the past so so i think things are changing yeah, it makes more sense as you mature and, and start to operate more as a business that you're relying less on the, the government. Chad, and could I say something also that I've noticed, and Robert might want to speak to this too, is that partly I think the reason that there's less funds in government going towards charities in the traditional way is partly because of the big push now to be viewed as and involved with innovation. Mm-hmm. And so you have government departments or agencies, you know, whatever American term you want to call it, um, different ministries, setting up innovation funds. And they have an innovation director who's giving out money to, you know, what might be called like social enterprises or just projects, you know, like that you would think of in the net squared sense, like people that just came up with an idea to do something and they won the challenge and they get funded. Instead, now they're just getting that fund for a similar kind of tech plus impact idea in a community or whatever from the innovation fund and so i think that that's shifting a little too because a lot of projects like that don't necessarily those people that came up with that innovative idea to do something better or different whatever um aren't necessarily charity people that have come from a background working in a nonprofit. so they don't necessarily think Okay, well, I'd like this money to start a nonprofit, and I'm going to create this this project. Instead, they think, okay, great, here's some seed money. We're going to make this project. Let's look at our sustainability plan. Maybe we want to be a social enterprise. Maybe we want maybe we want to be a for profit. What whatever, because the innovation funds aren't restricted by this is money for charities. It's this is money for innovation because we just want to be on top of that movement. Right. So so there's more flexibility for them to take that money. And then, you know, get funded in some other way in a more sustainable long term way that those big funds are no longer just like charity public sector money. Interesting. I do agree with that. And I think that things such as such as the, the, the National Lottery has, has gives out a huge amount of money to um, uh, to charities. And that's starting that. Well, that has um, taken the place of a lot of money coming from um, from government as well. So, you know, there's. The, the, Lots of different ways that the, the money is coming in. It's just it, it's very much changing, though. I think that um, there's um, different um, ways that people um, are having to fundraise now. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Are individuals increasingly giving more and more money to nonprofits? As far as like you know, sort of the culture of charity and giving. I I know that the UK was sort of at least what from I've learned what I've learned here at Blackbot is that the UK was sort of traditional or different than the. Uh, than the continent, so, so to speak, uh, whereas there was a different sort of outlook on giving um, if you were in like France or Italy or something than there was in the UK. It was almost like seen as like uh, begging or something. Am, am I am I wrong? <laughs> did I did I imagine that? <laughs> not not so much in the I mean, not so much in the UK. I mean, there's always right. been a, 
a sort of a, a, a culture of charity in the in the UK. But you're right, you know, a lot of European countries um, had that, and there's also the subtleties of the ask are different in the UK as opposed to the US. A story that I always used to tell when I was a when I was a consultant and I used to talk about, you know, um, fundraising across the uh, across the globe was a was you know not long after I started with Blybod for a couple of years in um, I was speaking to someone in, in our US office and they, they were telling me about um, an ask that had happened in the US which was basically they had taken the, the organization this is about five or six years ago now um, the organization had taken and the amounts that people had given in the previous year and then invoice that out to people um, <laughs> and from there, which um, I used to tell the story because I know we always get a laugh from the UK um, audience because they couldn't believe that this could even possibly happen because um, it, it seemed incredibly cheeky from, a, <laughs> for, um, and from the UK. So we have to be a little bit more subtle. We can't just go and say, can you give us money? Right. Um, um, although once again, that that attitude is is slowly but surely starting to starting to change. But you know, an older person in the UK um, would not um, take lightly to um, having an invoice sent to them. Let's put it that way. <laughs> gotcha. Now, now, Mark, I wanted to ask you sort of about this as well. Um, how this sort of different kind of ask and different kind of mentality affects maybe people that are from abroad that come to the states. When you're coaching people on fundraising here in the United States, do they need to take this new account when asking for money from? Some Somebody that's from abroad? Excellent question. I haven't actually, it, it must not be prevalent enough or I haven't run into it as much. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my gut sense is that it would be more like asking for someone who's a venture capitalist. Uh, there's a, there are people that have a charitable intent that are have been raised in uh, households where giving without strings attached is typical. And then there are those of us that like to see something <laughs> accomplished with what we're giving. Right. And then there are people that have a whole different outlook, like Amy was talking about, where Nonprofit isn't even necessarily an option among many uh, because there are other ways and, and things like sustainability are more important to right. them, which is healthy. <laughs> so I think it would probably be more more of a similar telling a story in a way that would attract a venture capitalist or someone that ha hasn't really been steeped in a culture of charitable giving that way. Right. Well, Robert, I know you mentioned older folks may um, you may need to you know approach them differently than you would uh, a younger person in the UK. Um, how is sort of the youth movement changing fundraising in, in the UK and maybe across the world in general? Well, I think for the for the UK, the the UK has always been traditionally um, a sort of high volume, low touch um, type of fundraising, and um, and that suits that suits a kind of younger person um, quite well. You know. Um, it's very much the opposite of the kind of high value gifts that you may um, spend a long time soliciting in the in the the, the US and we have the um, the now tradition um, but um, I can remember it starting up of of, of chuggers who um, take your bank details in the street and um, and then you have you know sort of five pounds a month or whatever and that's the story I tell in the US um, to raise a laugh because people don't particularly like to give it the bank details or so I'm told. <laughs> You think? <laughs> but, yeah. um, and um, and that that tends to be um, the, the, that does lend itself more uh, easily to, to younger people who don't have a lot of, or, or, or high amounts of disposable income, but they can afford you know sort of five pounds a month or, or ten pounds a month. And we have lots of organisations, especially um, a lot of organisations who are using five software you know, um, that are that are processing two hundred, three hundred thousand gifts. Every single month, wow. by debit. and those are those are guaranteed gifts. So they are coming in every single month. You don't have to do any work for them. Um, at a small value, but at least you know you're still seeing that, and you've got that relationship there. Um, so there's there's a there's a fair amount of that type of um, thing happening. Now, just Robert, a when quick I was translation: living... uh, a chugger is a term of endearment <laughs> in the UK for a charity mugger. So these are the people who wait out by the. Uh, the tube station or the train station and ask you to donate, you know, two pounds a month to British Heart Foundation or WISPA or something. And um, that's the, the term that's used for these folks. You see it in Canada like as well um, and Europe and a bit in sort of Asia Pacific too. And wow. Robert and Amy, I wanted to jump in with the question about more specific asks. So, one of our surveys that we do is a not-for-profit uh, industry survey, and one thing that stood out to us was that more and more um, charities are struggling with getting 
operational funds, especially in the UK, Netherlands, and Germany. Mm-hmm. How has that changed in recent years, and uh, what kind of strategies are you seeing people use? I mean, I, I think the, the the thing that we certainly I I see the most is is the um, is very much the, the kind of rise of the internet here as um, as a as a tool. You know, people are going on online and trying to use that as a as a cheap way of um, of bringing their co- or a good way of bringing their costs down because it, you know there's not as much of a um, an overhead um, for an email as there is for you know. Um, a magazine, or a, or even just an ask, um, which is going through the post. So um, that's that's what I've been seeing. I don't know, if, Amy, if you've been seeing anything um, anything other than that. Have you been yeah. seeing donors restrict gifts though for certain programs more so? I don't really have exposure to that kind of thing. I mean, I'm when I go into a nonprofit to talk with them or to help them or just you know brainstorm with them. It's it's always within the parameter of the fact that I am a social media person. So they're not necessarily like, oh, let's talk about this campaign we want to do. And look at this shiny brochure we're going to mail out. You know, like mm-hmm. I never see any other side of their their work, really. I do think, though, that there's a real shift happening around the small, if we can get enough small gifts for this program, then that one big grant we got will go to operating support if that makes sense. Like, oh, here are these online tools we can use and we could do a campaign for people to donate, you know, 10 pounds into this like virtual bucket that is adding up and it's this big thing that we're doing for September or something, you know, Um, and really play up what online is good at with campaigning and visual and viral and all of that. And then they just kind of leave the traditional fundraising for the more in the in quote unquote invisible work, you know, just keeping the lights on and showing up at their computer every day, et cetera. Well, that makes sense just from an engagement level because the people that are really interested in those channels are more engaged and want to see where their gifts are going. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's harder to say, let's fill this bucket that we put on the website um, and when we fill it up, all the lights turn on in the office. Like, that's less <laughs> exciting for people. <laughs> you know, they'd rather be like, oh, the bucket's full, and now all the dogs have been saved, you know? <laughs> I mean, unless you guys want to run a Let's Keep the Light Bulbs On campaign, it could be, it could be great. But <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about online giving. I know um, Steve is kind of looking at some of the trends. Is it kind of trending the same way in the UK as it is here, Steve? Robert probably has some of this too because we trade a lot of the numbers back and forth and he converts them into pounds sterling. On average, we certainly have seen over the past um, five years that we've been tracking a lot of this data more closely, um, a rise in online giving by charities in the UK and, and also the rest of Europe. And so, you know, I think that trend continues. The volume is certainly not where it is in the U.S. and North America, but continues to grow. We see very strong you know, average gift rates when we look at customer data. And it also follows the same patterns. It typically, you know, the online giving increases towards the end of the year. Um, there's sort of a lull in the mid part of the year, and, and that cycle repeats itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in general, what we see is more um, international organizations using a combination of web, email, social media, direct mail, direct marketing to drive people to the web because it is cheaper, more cost-effective, especially for um, when they run recurring gift programs to get somebody to go and update, you know, what their recurring gift is online, doing those kinds of things is much more cost-effective. And Robert may have some some additional things to chime in about. Yeah, what what I would say is that um, as far as credit card giving is concerned, we've seen some pretty big um, increases over the last couple of years, 2007 to 2008, so um, about 18% of a, um, a rise, which is not too bad it, when we're when we're sitting in a recession for the amount um, given to, to rise by that amount. And uh, and so far um, in 2009, we've we've seen an even larger um, rise in in credit card giving. So that's that's certainly it's up something like 23% or something like that from from um, from last year, so that's a that's a pretty it's pretty good numbers, um, and uh, it is showing that people aren't 
stopping giving because of the recession or um you know or or, or or things like that you know so 2007 there was over over a billion pounds um donated just using credit cards and uh, credit and debit cards sorry could we have that um that difference um and uh and so that's 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 good numbers for for a, an audience of a, of the size of the UK did people give that the, that information to chuggers on the street they don't give their credit card information. No, they would give their bank accounts and sort code um, details, which is um... <laughs> from somebody on the other side of the pond. Yeah, that's far more intrusive. Wow, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's becoming it's becoming increasingly high tech now because um, a lot of chuggers nowadays will have EDAs or whatever and take the details and that goes straight into um, a back end database as soon as you've given it. Um, giving your details on the street, it's 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 right in there, um, and then they can set up a direct debit. And the beauty of the direct debit system is they can take whatever amount they want from your bank account once they have that. Um, um, so that that that's also quite a scary thing for um, for people who aren't used to this um, this system. But um, but yeah yeah, I mean they, they, that that's a funny thing. People would never give out. I mean, if someone came up to me and asked me for my credit card information. There's no way I would be handing that over. Um, but you'd feel very but, comfortable uh, giving your bank account but i would give them a bank account details <laughs> yes <laughs> wow different different banking systems says that's the that's the key okay. yeah. just need to get the well, rfid and plant it in your wrist and you know yeah. a quick just scan and a wave at the cc bad. camera and uh... <laughs> right every time you wave at people you're buying things yeah <laughs> yeah the other thing that's interesting in the uk as well is there's something called standing orders which is sort of the opposite of all of this where individuals actually go to their bank and say, I would like to give to this charity this particular amount. And the charity is actually completely oblivious to this until mm. the dollars just start showing up. So nice. there's lots of different forms of giving that, that make it very interesting. And then, of course, if anyone can explain gift aid in 140 characters or less. <laughs> um, I wasn't even going to bring it up. <laughs> 28% more. There you go. Nice. <laughs> How is this in Australia? How does this work? Where you, I know you've been doing some traveling there. Is it similar to what you're seeing in the UK? It's very similar. Um, you know, when you look at Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, a lot of recurring gift giving, a lot of direct debit based giving and, and monthly giving, very popular. So similar types of things there, although their adoption of more online event-based fundraising and that kind of stuff, I think, has been a little bit more ahead of the curve in, in those areas just because of distances and, and things like that. But um, similar type of thing uh, that you'd see in that part of the world, too. And what's going on with mobile and SMS? There, there, there actually has been some, some fairly big changes um, in, the last, in the last year. The, the, the main thing that holds um, SMS back from from being a really powerful fundraising tool is the fact that um, um, if I if I'm charged let me see let's say I'm charged two pounds for a for a, uh, an SMS um, up to um, 50 60 percent of that currently goes towards the mobile operator so it would go to you know the oranges and the T-Mobiles and so on um, of this world and um, and charities not um, surprisingly, are not particularly happy with the fact that, that, that um, more than half of their gift is going to um, is going to a, a, a mobile operator. Um, there have been a few changes. There was a, a, a this year um, Comic Relief, which is a big um, UK telethon um, that, that happens, and it's all high, very famous actually. Uh, is that the one that's been going on for twenty years or something? <laughs> That's the filler, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think I used to watch that on HBO when I was a kid. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. I was doing homework watching that, yeah. <laughs> I was a nerd. And and it and it um they they managed to negotiate um a deal with their mobile operator that they the operator didn't take any um any, any money. And um much as that was, you know, there's a few charities out there raising their eyebrows saying, Well, why why did Comet Relief get away with it and we have to pay money? Um however a lot of organizations are still using SMS, but they're using it more as an informational tool and more of a campaigning tool or advocacy tool. So we're, we're seeing a few organizations take our SMS module and use it for things like during the London Marathon, for example, people are sent, you know, the runners are sent an SMS by the charity. It's seen as a far more personal thing. Um, so the charity gets an SMS, sends it out to the um, to the person who, and all it says is, you know, good luck with the, the marathon today and then they get a, a, 
another text message maybe four hours five hours or in my case maybe six or seven hours later <laughs> saying well done for finishing um and things like that and and we we found that the charities that are doing that have had some some really nice feedback because they felt it, it was much more personal um so so that that area is is doing well the fundraising is still a bit to go before it's, it's truly a, a proper fundraising tool. Let's talk a little bit about social media and uh, fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can listen every once in a while. I think that's perfectly fine. I think it'll be fun. Right. Um, I, yeah, I'm, just, I'm sure it's, you know, social media is trending kind of in the same ways it is uh, over here in the States. But is there any, um, some cool examples that you can bring out about some, you know, UK uh, not-for-profits that are using social media to really further their cause? I don't know. I mean, I, I find I'm constantly wanting to work more and more with international charities and just forming partnerships there. Even though I know NWF is national, a lot of the online communities that I used to be really active in or that I still kind of am are all international. Like DIG is incredibly international. And and so it's really awesome because when a DIG would go popular, we'd get donations from Italy and (laughs) Switzerland and India and things like that. And, you know, it's good to remember that you know, the U.S. cares about animals in other countries, and other countries care about animals in the U.S., so. Right. Now, I know, uh, you know, Robert and Amy, you guys, I think we're over there during the, um, so the pre and post Stephen Fry Twitter world in the U.K. I mean, wasn't that sort of the bump that put the island over the over the hump regarding <laughs> Twitter? Did that, did that right. actually change, sort of like how, not, you know, not-for-profits use Twitter? I don't know. I mean, I see a lot more people, I mean, I, I see other people acting as influencers, and he could be famous, but like he's still not the person that you have copy with every day that can continual continually answer your questions about like why am I using this really silly tool? Oh, okay, now I get it. Right. Because that I mean, that's like proven as the, the Twitter curve is this is weird, <laughs> this is silly, oh it's kind of fun. <laughs> oh, and now it's valuable. Yep. <laughs> Just so, like blogs ten years ago, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I mean I I kind of see as at least for Twitter, but also with many other social media tools over here that there are it there are influencers in smaller pockets Mm -hmm. that are much more responsible for getting those other people on board than the really visible higher scale people like they can they can be something that they that they can point their boss to to be like look here was something famous but then they're relying on influencers in the, like the next tier down, you know, that are actually more tangible influencers. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I would I would agree with that actually. I think you know the likes of Stephen Fry and um, and others have they were very useful in establishing the um, the idea of Twitter. But there are other other people who are doing a lot more for that. There's a there's a chap called Jason Bradbury who um, is um, just another celebrity in the UK presents a show called The Gadget Show. Um, uh, and um, one of the things that he likes to do is, you know, he likes to every now and again put a shout out and say, well, which charities want, you know, um, should I be promoting just now? I've got 35,000 people following me. Give me your names and I'll start, I'll ask them to follow you as well. And, <laughs> and you know, the likes of Stephen Fry, who has 300,000 following him, I haven't really seen that. I've seen the, the occasional thing coming from him where he where where he'll say, you know, support this friend of mine or whatever. But um, which which is which is fair enough. But um, but for actually you know doing charitable work, you know there there, there are a lot of um, others who are doing a bit more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say as far as um, organisations uh, or charities in the UK, a lot of the smaller charities are actually doing some great work on on Twitter. Um, there's an organization called Bullying UK, and I don't know if anyone um, has heard of them. They're a, they're I was just going to bring that up when you were done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if you wanted... Um, uh, oh, no, no, uh, go ahead. Story. I'm just validating it as an example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're... they're, they're I say they are doing a great job. There's not that many of them there. There's a chap called John um, Colonel who, um, who who does a lot of their um, social media work, and um, and one of the things that they've been doing um, because what they're trying to do, they're they're not using Twitter or, or social media as a as a fundraising um, uh, tool. They're using it as an awareness tool. They want to to get this this 
um, the idea of bullying um, out there and to have people talk about it and things like that. And one of the nice things they have, they have a really cool um, poster application that, they, that they've built. And it, it hooks up with Facebook and it hooks up with um, with Twitter as well, where it, which pushes you through to their site. And you can build this um, anti-bullying poster and it has lots of nice little things that kids can use and they can um, put messages on there and when they're finished with the poster they then publish that poster and, and what the way they've got it set up, which, which I think is really nice, is as soon as a child um, has um, had their, their poster published or as soon as they say, well, right, that's me finished with my poster, they can take that poster, they can print it out show it to their parents but then there's an automatic twitter um or automatic tweet sorry that goes out at that point um that says look at this nice poster that insert child's name has done for us and um, then there's a link on twitter that takes them back to the poster and, and so on um just giving a little bit of publicity to that to that child and it's 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 nice and it builds builds up a, a awareness but it's a nice kind of powerful way of using the and um, the software for um for campaigning like that I don't know if you've seen any other examples. Well, and, and I mean, and John does other stuff as well to show the, you will make a name for your organization, especially in John's case, where Bullying UK is, as you say, using this for, for publicity and getting people aware of, A, issues around bullying, but also, B, things that you can do positively to put a poster up in your classroom, you know, create a conversation where all of the children are talking together, blah, blah, blah. And so he has been doing quite a bit to put out resources for others to use Twitter well, because that only reinforces that they're doing it well and, you know, um, join join in with them. So they've done a lot to, to promote Charity Tuesdays, and John's been spearheading um, interviews with organizations that are using Twitter about how they're using it so that other nonprofits could read read those interviews that consist of just a few questions that cover like how did you get started, why, what what do you use Twitter for, kind of thing. It's just as more example for people at that beginning of the adoption curve that are like, this is still silly, I don't get it. So just creating a more open place for everybody to be talking about how cool these tools are in a way that's not like they're cool because they're new, but. They're cool because we're doing good things with them. Right. One of the nice things that I was able to do this past month was with the Twestable Locals. I applied to be a regional coordinator, and Amanda said, could you do the fundraising team? And so three of us were able to help people around the world do fundraising. And cool. what I what I was pretty impressed with was the sophistication that seemed to be around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, people in, in the UK and in Canada were the ones that were responding to the webinars the most. But people, and I probably, I guess it's in part because they're on Twitter, the the people that were organizing Twestivals. So you've already got a certain subset of the population. But um, the creativity, fundraising didn't seem to be just, I kept getting stuck in the just give a gift without any strings attached. And they were much more willing to go to the let's have raffles and let's have um, sales at these events and let's do these other things, guess the number of M&Ms in the jar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that I've tried to steer my organizations away from, but for that kind of event actually work. Mm-hmm. If it's total dollars raised for a small thing and it's not something that is going to be glommed onto the nonprofit's annual calendar. So I was really impressed. And, and that nobody, I kept asking them, what are things that you hate when Americans come over or do Americans do fundraising uh, training? What are the things that really annoy you? And I kept getting these blank stares, uh, digital blank stares. Right. And uh, <laughs> it was it was kind of refreshing, too, because I guess there's been a, a certain level of sophistication where they're able to f- eat the bo- chicken, spit out the bones of the stuff that they don't like. And, you know, there weren't any big faux pas that they let me know that I made. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say that, it, at least in my experience of being a social media facilitator, trainer person in the U.S. and then coming here with a very similar job, you know, I had the same job. I do the same kinds of things. Um I was I was very like self aware waiting for the event when people like got up and left and were like we don't want to listen to the American I, like <laughs> bloody American you know, yeah exactly prepare, prepare yourself for that horrible moment so that whatever happens is better than that you know <laughs> um, because I mean I was I spoke at a conference two days after landing so I kind of hit the ground running and was waiting for. You know, like, should I try to change my accent? Should I sound like I'm from Canada? Is that better? You know? (laughs) Um, But I never really found 
anything that was like, we, you know, because you're American, we don't like how you do this or the way you present this or, or not just because you're, you're American, American, but because you're not already doing it the way we are. But the thing that I found was that the, or the most skepticism came when I was trying to facilitate conversations or, or doing like a small workshop with people about actual culture shift about adoption in an an actual organization and not how do you run a campaign, but how do you get your organization to use Twitter? Because then it's, it's really easy for people to just push back and say, well, I'm sure that it's different in America to change an organization Mm -hmm. mindset. But at the same time, it's not nobody, nobody wants to change. That's why we have conversations and conferences about, changing people's minds you know? <laughs> oh, that um, Seth Godin was right <laughs> I mean the, you know I think I think the carrots might be different that you use or what kind of tricks you do to reinforce positive behavior or yeah. shut down negative behavior when you're actually trying to get a whole organization to adopt new policies or new software or anything obviously that's going to be different and that's going to be different between for-profit and non-profit and a two-person office and a 200-person office, you know, and it, once once you bring that up, then you really start to deconstruct what's going on in that organization and, like, let's face the specifics that you're dealing with. Um, you can move beyond that, but that was really the only thing that I experienced personally with any kind of pushback. It was never about fundraising strategies or social media tools for different kinds of projects. It was really the, the culture change issue. I was even um, apologizing for the gift range calculator. I was sending people to the BlackBot gift range calculator and said, I'm sorry that it says dollars, please oh. <laughs> use whatever. So, but when we went there, because it's such a simple calculator, there's no monetary uh, amounts anyway. Yeah. Denominations, yeah. So people around the world can use that and use it for whatever their you know local denomination is. It's kind of cool. Very uh-huh. cool. Oh, very cool. Nice. All right. It was, I made all this fuss, and then the people... In the UK, we're wondering what the fuss was about. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I would say the only other thing is um, just in that like serendipitous, coincidental world. Earlier this morning, when I uh, remembered that I was doing this tonight and right. had to like write it down again so that I wouldn't forget for the third time, um, I looked up and someone had tweeted. A UK person had tweeted, and then started a conversation. So many others replied. Also in the UK. Um, and the original statement was complaining that um, they believed um, fundraising appeals out of the U.S. were very whiny and baggy. Ah. And then I don't know they what said, you're talking about. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. And they said, they're not like that here, are they? And then, you know, so people started talking about like, oh, yeah, I hate U.S. Campaigns, you know, whatever uh-huh. they were saying. But I was just like, I obviously just automatically read Baggy and was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Don't, don't be mean to Americans. Uh-huh. And then I was like, well, but maybe, I mean, this goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier and the differences. But, you know, maybe it's the way um, different communities, not, I wouldn't go so far as to say U.S. and U.K., but like certain sectors or, or certain communities that you're trying to reach expect you to phrase either your whole campaign or your fundraising, like your specific ask, in a way that tries to be super personal and like, it's okay that I'm just asking you, or do I try to phrase this in a, we should all be helping each other and give us the money so that we can do that. You know, and like, is was that reflective of her thinking that in the UK people always say larger, we should all be doing this, give us money, right. or I don't know, because it's been my impression that far more than in the US, over here, individual campaigns, like I'm running London Marathon, I'm going to raise money, or you know, organizations doing a spin-off on that individual participant raises money on behalf of us idea is is way more popular and way more successful over here than in the US, at least on the West Coast where I was. And so that made me think the opposite of what she had said in that you you would be, by that example, more exposed to the individual whiny, please give me fifty more pounds so I can raise more in the marathon. You know, <laughs> but I don't know. 
that's just me. <laughs> just me watching Twitter. <laughs> that's right. That's I, I would say the difference there is oh. is you it, your people are being whiny, but they're your, it's your friends that are being whiny. Right. That's true. Majors, you know? And and your friends are only being whiny because you've held out and they know you haven't donated yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. They have insider information. That's right. <laughs> so if if you had advice for nonprofits who you know work nationally or work in a regional area, but who were dealing with people from all sorts of backgrounds internationally, do you guys have any advice on like how you would approach them differently or? Well, I mean, I'm normally someone that says by default, like any kind of question like that, my default answer is ask them, Mm -hmm. ask them how they want you to address them, ask them how they want to get campaigns, ask them if they want to be a part of like, you know, a special advisory team that gives you a little bit of input that's like, oh, before you send this message to South America, change this word that you would have never known. But a lot of groups, A, are not comfortable, and B, don't necessarily have the capacity to be like, uh, you know, we have to write this email a day ahead because we have to let somebody see it. We write emails, and then we send them, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. but that's my default is to just say like, you know, if you see that you have quite a bit of people hitting your website from Brazil, say, you know, put up a blog post that's like, clearly there's a real passion in Brazil for saving animals in the world. Let's talk about it, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, put it out there that you know and that you want to invite them in, even though, like, NWF isn't necessarily, like, fighting for Brazil every day. Just because then you'll get... Actually, we are right now. That's actually the... It's funny you say that. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny you say that because we have a Brazil tweeter right now. No, just kidding. Um, oh, I was like, wow. No, we really do. We're we're doing a lot of work with the forest stuff in Brazil, especially. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean that that kind of thing. See, the problem with with saying that to some people, um, just in general, is that sometimes people think that they that when you survey and ask the questions, and this is true when it's incorrect question phrasing, I think, but people don't know what they want actually want right you know like well and that goes into the whole design of i mean you how you ask you're not yeah yeah, you're you're gonna get feedback that you give them the opportunity to do you know like if you put it out there on your website like here's an empty form fill it out and hit submit (laughs) you're gonna get all kinds of stuff that means nothing to nobody and for the most part it's like where can I find my local rent-a-car? And you're like, you randomly found my form. I am not the rental car service, you know? <laughs> right. But if you put things out there that say, you know, let us know which country you're in, what are the biggest issues to you this year, and what was your biggest issue last year? And, you know, like, you actually make it structured but open. I like it. Embrace that's the diversity pretty. in a structured way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, Ooh, honestly, nice. that's that's what I, I like about social media is you can ask these questions yeah. and, and get, you know, the answers. My fear is that a lot of people, like, especially with when you think about direct mail and stuff like that, people have very rigid thoughts on what works and what doesn't. Right. And when I say, you know, we should offer an, an option that you you pay a certain amount and you don't get any mail. And everyone's yeah. like, no, people people need mail. And even the people who are, like, complaining about how much mail they get, they, they wait until, like, the very last second to respond. And that's why they do, you know? Right. So there but, are I mean, at the there. same time, as far as feedback and survey and putting conversation out there, don't, don't put the form on your website or put the blog post up or ask for feedback in a survey that you're not prepared to analyze and respond to. I mean, I, th- I see a lot of groups that are like, oh, wow, we just got a bump from Brazil in web hits this week. Let's say something about it. And then you get people interested and they're like, yeah, I'm from Brazil and I came to your website and this is why, because I want you to report more on this or something, for instance. And yeah. and then they never do. They never even comment back on that blog post. And that's the only thing tagged with Brazil on the website, you know? Yeah. No, it's definitely... <laughs> There's so much to be done. <laughs> it's kind of scary, so actually. Um, yeah. No no talk on international fundraising would, I don't think, any talk would be complete without uh, mentioning the Showcase of Fundraising Innovation and Inspiration, sofi.org, S-O-F-I-I.org. Okay. Ken Burnett put this out there, and it showcases, if you want to know what the Bulgarian Red Cross campaign did in 2004, okay. there are PDF images of the Bulgarian Red Cross's no campaign. Way. UK images of their little beer coasters that said, when you come back as a whale, 
and the flip side of the beer coaster it says you'll be glad you left Greenpeace in your will or something like that. Ah. Uh, and they were in the bars in the 70s and you in the UK. The website is uh, www.sofii.org. And it's a fairly simple registration. You have to get a um, password and, and I think a username and password, okay. but it's got a whole bunch of just amazing showcases up there. And it's not the most easy to use user interface, but there's a lot of great, great stuff on Yeah, there. it looks cool. Your source of free and creative concepts worth copying. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Melanie, I know you're itching to give a, give us some international news from the bot here. Would you like to? Hey, I'm checking out this Sophie website. <laughs> nice. check back with you? <laughs> yeah. Come back later, please. Actually, we're going to play a little game of Around the World. Did you guys ever play that? Probably not the, the way you're going. No, it sounds familiar. <laughs> So instead of basketball, we're just going to hop around the globe to some different Blackboard offices. Not quite as fun, but definitely entertaining. So we'll start in England, uh, where we're going to be having our Relationship Management Conference. That's going to be on October 12th and 13th. And we always have a, a huge variety of sessions focused on nonprofit tech and best practices with some really interesting speakers. And we're really excited about this year's keynote speaker, Paul Williamson, who is the head of ticketing for the 2012 Olympic Games. His job is a little complicated. He has to fill 35 stadiums to capacity for 750 sports sessions. So he's going to share a little bit about the marketing challenges and opportunities that the games will bring with that. So it'll be a really interesting discussion, and there's still time to register. And you can find out more information at blackbaud.co.uk. And Robert, are you going to be presenting there? Steve, anybody? I'll be presenting, yeah. I have um, three separate sessions um, this year, so yeah. I'll be presenting specifically on um, social media um, is, is one of the things. And I know Steve is definitely presenting. He has a few um, sessions there as well. So we'll both be very busy those two days. Nice. And then over to the Netherlands, our RLC division in the Netherlands announced that they will partner with Friends of the Earth Netherlands, Mia Defensi, a leading environmental organization with more than 90,000 members, and they recently, and they recently share a base, which is RLC's CRM offering. So we're really excited to welcome them to the BlackBot family. And then down to Australia, BlackBot Pacific recently partnered with FINS, which is the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. All the way over to Canada, Kidney Foundation of Canada recently launched its new site on BlackBotNet Community. So we're really excited about that, and you can check it out at kidney.ca. Back in the USA, uh, BlackBot was named to Software Magazine's 27th Annual Software 500, and we've been on that ranking for more than a decade. It's the world's largest software company list, and we're at 133 this year. Very excited about that. And also the BlackBot Conference for Nonprofits, which will be held in Charleston, South Carolina, on November 15th through 18th. And you can check out the sessions and register at blackbot.com. Nice. Thanks, Melanie. Everybody listening, if you uh, need to get even more of your fill of BlackBot news, please uh, check out Melanie at blackbot.com slash news or twitter.com slash melmatho. Thanks for being on the show today, Melanie. Amy, let's go to you. Do you have anything you'd like to plug uh, for NetSquared? Well, one fun thing is that there are now more than 50 cities hosting Net Tuesdays every month. Cool. All around the world, from Tokyo to Cameroon. So really excited to get more local organizers going, too, because what we've seen now that we've kind of reached that critical mass of local communities all over the world, that they are able to network in really cool ways, like have the Us Now film screenings throughout the world for Net Tuesdays this month. Really seeing that global versus local network find, like get to pull both directions, the, the push me, pull you, mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, I think a lot of attempts at something like that get lopsided um nice. but maybe having a an organizational structure of less than a handful <laughs> <laughs> keeps it keeps it pretty impossible to pull just our way right. so so that's really fun and where can um, uh, listeners check out more about net tuesdays netsquared.org okay. or you can go specifically to netsquared.org slash net two dash local okay so Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, if yeah. you'd like to keep up with Amy, fun. check out uh, amysampleward.com or follow her at uh, twitter.com slash amyrsward. Mr. Pittman, the fundraising coach, what do you have for us today? Well, I'm excited to be speaking in a couple of weeks in Seattle for a keynote, and it'll be right at the REI flagship store. 
which is kind of fun since my tagline is fundraising is an extreme sport. Nice. I'll be in the <laughs> home of the extreme sports. And then book is still selling well, I ask without fear. So I'm pretty excited to be able to continue plugging that more than a year yeah. later. It's still going. Nice. All right. Well, if you want to check out uh, the book and the blog and all the speaking engagements, I think everybody can get to your stuff from fundraisingcoach.com. And also uh, follow Mark at twitter.com slash Mark A. Pittman for just some fantastic tweets. Yeah. All right. Um, Robert, what do you have going on over there? Well, Melanie obviously has already talked about it at our conference. Right. So maybe I should use this time to, to talk about our, our Net Community Grow offering that we've um, we've put out there. Now, that's been available in the U.S. for a while, but um, we've tweaked it and changed it for the for the UK and um, and what this is is a, a version of Net Community that is, is a templated version of Net Community um, coming in at a lower pr- price point because everything's already pre-built for people and we've had a huge take up for this but um, we can always bring more people in and um, and so if you want more details on it then um, go to blackboard.co.uk. Great. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Robert. Some really just great insights from over there. I hope to have you back at some point. Um, yeah, and definitely uh, check out uh, Robert at blackbot.co.uk slash the translator to uh, read his blog. And you can follow him on Twitter at uh, Rob McCallum. Is that everybody? Who did I forget? Oh! Danielle, the silent one. <laughs> it's okay. Danielle! <laughs> Usually we're a little more chatty. <laughs> I know, but I just, I, I wanted to listen. She's still in Brazil. Time. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I'm thinking about that right now. Yeah, so what, what's going on in um, WF? Well, actually talking about you know, some of our campaigns. If you want to learn a little bit more about some of our international work, go to forestjustice.org, I believe. That's one of our newer campaigns, and it's talking about, well, forest justice. No, it's pretty neat. And let's see, what else is going on at NWF? Well, of course, it's a beautiful time of year right now, so everyone should get outside. And if you need help, NWF has a really neat tool that we're working on, and it's called Nature Find. So you can go to nwf.org slash nature find and find places. But I feel kind of guilty because right now it's just the U.S. and this okay. is international. So okay. I fail, but... <laughs> so, so that would be the type of place that Monk, the obsessive-compulsive detective, would not oh. want to go to. Right, right. Because um, he, he would nature. actually He would use it to avoid it. You know that would I mean? be an interesting ad. Don't go to this site. You'll find all these cool nature places, and it might get on you. Yes. <laughs> you might get a tick. Watch out. <laughs> well, no, you up. just might get nature. Like, hit for him a blade of grass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I kind of like that for, like, NWF's new catchphrase, get natured. Like, with a, with a D on the get end. Like, natured. <laughs> get natured. Get your nature on. I like it. I like it. I'm going to tweet that later. Here. <laughs> you know what? You should start it. <laughs> get I just got natured by end of <laughs> Oh gosh. I'm getting it right now. Okay, cool. <laughs> awesome. And I'd also like to thank all of you for being on the show. It was a great episode. Especially since I was quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because of that. Alright, well that does it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank our guest Danielle Brigida, Amy Sample Ward, Mark Pittman, Robert McAllen, Melanie Mathis, and Steve McLaughlin. You can keep up with the podcast and other webby things by following me on Twitter at twitter.com slash chadnorman or by checking out my blog at blackbot.com slash webby things. If you have feedback for the show, please send us an email at thebodcast at blackbot.com. Until next time, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Well, they got got Skype in Maine. Well, you know, we just got into our plumbing last year, so we're kind of we're a little behind the curve. But yes, yeah. Unless you're Melanie chopping wood on her keyboard. I know. Oh, holy yeah, cow! You're forgetting. Right Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you need to peel, just say so. Um, no people do it all the time, okay. so it's no big deal. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. Thanks, Chad. We don't <laughs> have that. Peel, peel yet. Alrighty then. <laughs>